Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Before we get started with this episode, just a brief note to some of our listeners. We moved the hosting for The Next Track website about six weeks ago to another service. We moved it from a self-hosted WordPress site to Fireside, a service that hosts a number of podcasts. And there was a slight problem when we made the move. We had an SSL certificate for the nexttrack.com domain. That's the certificate that encrypts information, that uses an HTTPS prefix on the URL, etc. And when we moved it to the new host, we weren't able to use it because they have their own certificate for all the sites they host. So some listeners, when they try to get to the site in Safari, they get an alert that's a little bit scary that says that this site could harvest your information, etc., what you need to do is go through the dialogue and say, yes, I want to go to the site. Yes, I really do. I really do. Once you get there, it'll be fine. I think what happens is that Safari is caching the old certificate. And once you've accepted the new certificate, everything's okay. So sorry about the hassle, but we did need to make the change. Thanks for bearing with us on that. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Next Track. This is episode number 101. If you heard us talking about radio in an episode a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that Radio Paradise is an internet radio station I like to listen to. I've been listening to Radio Paradise since the early 2000s. And today's guest is one of the two co-founders and co-operators of Radio Paradise, Bill Goldsmith. Bill, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. I should say it's great to finally meet you since you've been in my house for so many years. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, I'm a regular listener to Radio Paradise, and you play a nice, wide, and deep mix of rock-centric music, but it never gets too light, it never gets too heavy, it has a really great flow, it's, it's nice to leave on for a few hours at a time. I want to talk about how you make the sausage, as it were, but first, you're obviously a radio guy. What's your history with radio? My history with radio goes back to when I was a little kid, and I was always fascinated by radio, listened to it obsessively. Uh, dreamed as a, as a child of eventually being a disc jockey or radio engineer or something like that. So I, I, I had the bug right from the get-go. I built my own little radio station when I was uh, 10 or 11 years old in the garage. Uh, and I uh, went, to, uh, went to work in radio right out of high school. So I started uh, started working radio when I was 18, and I worked in the uh, in the commercial radio business in one way, shape, or form as a disc jockey, program director, engineer, station manager. I did everything except sell ads. Uh, I produced and recorded a lot of them, wrote a lot of them, but uh, so I, I, I spent uh, a, the bulk of my uh, of my adult work life in the uh, in the radio business, and then. Uh, in the 90s, the internet came along, and I was involved in, in putting one of the first FM stations on the air that, uh, that went on the internet, uh, the first commercial FM station on the internet in 1996. And um, I worked with them and with some other, uh, other stations, and, and my work life started to evolve from, uh, from less and less on-air and hands-on radio into more working with stations on their, on their internet presence. And uh, and I got the idea that, hey, there might be an opportunity here for me to start my own station, which uh, had always been a dream of mine. But, uh, you know, that was, you know, hopelessly out of reach when it comes to uh, comes to FM. And so uh, and so I 
got the idea for Radio Paradise. I'm thinking back to 1996. How did we listen to streaming internet radio stations? Was it real audio back then? Uh, real audio uh, started up in uh, in 96, yeah. And actually, my, my uh, stream setup preceded them by... Uh, by a, a, about six months or so, and we were using a uh, an MP3 streaming system. And that's long gone. Yeah, because the bandwidth was so slow back then. I mean, we were measuring in baud's around that time. We we ran a 16 kilobit per second stream, uh, which could just barely make it through a uh, dial-up modem connection. We had a high fidelity 24 kilobits per second stream that the uh, the people that like you know, universities and other really well-connected places. Could, the people uh, had T1 lines. Yeah, yeah. It was a whole different world back then. It was the uh, you know, it was the wild west of the internet. Uh, everybody was just making up the rules and making up the technology as they uh, as they went along. And it was a real fun deal to be there for uh, for the radio side of that. Uh, and then it was, uh, like I said, an opportunity to do something that was entirely my own. And I, I had been pretty lucky as people in the in the radio industry go uh, throughout most of my career at being able to find radio stations where I could do the kind of radio that I uh, that I really love to do uh, which is you know eclectic and diverse and DJ programmed uh, you know I, I was able to find uh, many you know much higher percentage of situations where I was controlling my own programming uh, when I was uh, when I was doing DJ shows, than than most people uh, were able to get away with. Both Kirk and I are old enough to remember the free format radio stations in the early days of FM radio, where there was no specific format, and and the jocks programmed their own music, and so a station had its own diverse personality. Whereas today, commercial radio is much more strict. One of the things I like about Radio Paradise is that it's familiar without being repetitive. And the song selection, well, there's a really great variety. And it's obvious you care about the flow of tempo and mood and styles and even right down to the segues between the songs. Is the flow ultimately more important than the song selection? Uh, well, I, I, like to, I like to think that it's both. You know, we start from a, from a universe of, of uh, quality music, uh, at least by our, our definition. Uh, and you know everything about Radio Paradise is uh, by our definition. It's you know that's the definition of Radio Paradise's format. It's music that Rebecca and I like, uh, and that's the universe that we choose from. But we like to think we have uh, we have good taste. So we we start with something that, uh, you know, that is uh, you know has some quality to it just uh, just to begin with, and then yeah, that's that's my thing. That's what I do. I sculpt a flow of music that goes as many different places as I can uh, without, without veering off into, into things that are unpleasant for, the, <laughs> uh, for, the, for a substantial portion of the, uh, of the audience. Uh, but to push as far against that line as I can and to stretch, and to stretch the, uh, the boundaries of what types of music, what genres of music are uh, appropriate to include in an eclectic rock stream, to push that as far as I can. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you. Um, in commercial radio, there's a big concern that listeners will tune away because they hear something that they don't like. So radio stations go to great lengths to play things that aren't tune-outs. And so as a result, you get these very safe 
formats. But but I suspect that you don't worry about listeners tuning out because they didn't hear their favorite song, because it's more about the experience of listening. Yeah, yeah. The majority of people that listen to Radio Paradise are people that have already decided that they like us. Uh, they already decided that they're going to keep listening, even if we play something they don't care for. Uh, we're not just, you know, you know, we're not one of, uh, you know, a whole big laundry list of other things they could be listening to right now that are more or less interchangeable. Uh, you know, they're they're invested in their relationship with, uh, with with the station to a certain extent. So that lets us get away with uh, with with playing things that we know are going to uh, to annoy and potentially drive away a certain percentage of the audience. Um, because those are, you know, those are exactly the things that people value the most about Radio Paradise is that, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know how many times we've gotten uh, gotten emails from people that say, uh, well, I thought I really hated fill in the blank kind of music. You know, I thought I really hated classical music or country music or jazz or whatever. And then you played, you know, X and such. And wow, I, I really liked it. Those are the those are the kinds of experiences that people particularly value about the about the station, is that uh, is that oh yeah that's the place that got me to uh, to start exploring Johnny Cash when I thought I hated country music. I'm looking at your current playlist. What's just been on recently? Steely Dan, Squeeze, Iron and Wine, Moby Grape, Leo Kotke, Roger Waters, Natalie Merchant, and so on and so on. You are able to in this sort of radio format do a sort of a deep listening that isn't dependent on what's popular today. And some of this stuff goes back to the 60s, and some of it's a few years old. But it's obvious from this playlist that you're looking for music that has a certain amount of depth and resonance to it, rather than just trying to check off a bunch of boxes to have specific types of songs on. Yes, that's abs that's absolutely true. We try not to... Uh to put anything on the air that we don't find personally meaningful, uh, not, nothing that doesn't, uh, that doesn't, you know, move us emotionally. Uh, even if it's just in the sense of, oh, yeah, I like that. I mean, that's, a, you know, that's an emotional response. You can dance to it. Yeah, it's got, a, it's got a good beat. Well, you had Iggy Pop's Lust for Life not long ago. A little bit before that, Led Zeppelin going to California. Not two songs that I would generally expect to be almost next to each other. I have to say, I was listening to that set this morning. Joni Mitchell's California played, then Going to California by Led Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this is where they're going to play a third song with California in the title. Or maybe they'll play, you know, they'll play Hotel California. Or maybe they'll play Estimated Profit that has California in it. But you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's how invested I am uh, in, in listening, because I'm already anticipating the delight I'm going to have from hearing the music that you play. Um, let's talk about that. Technically speaking, um, how do you do Radio Paradise? I mean, you're not live, first of all. No, no. Radio Paradise is never live. Uh, and I have over the years evolved a set of software tools that I wrote and developed myself, uh, to, uh, to control the programming, to, uh, you know, to preassemble the playlists and to play everything back and encode the streams and everything. They're, uh, there weren't any uh, tools out there that were designed for the kind of radio that I want to do. Uh, that let me, you know, search through a library of music in the way that I want to search and make, comp you know, put together combinations of songs uh, in a, you know, in an artistic fashion. 
all radio software uh, is designed around uh, what's called uh, algorithmic programming, where you come up with a formula, uh, you know, for each hour of music, and you uh, you have you know different slots, different categories of types of songs, and you uh, just have a computer. Uh, slot those together into an uh, into an hour of music, and that is the only way, uh, outside of a few non-commercial stations here and there, that is the only way that radio is programmed these days. And so all of the software is oriented towards that kind of thinking. The software we used to use was something called Selector, which you're probably you've probably heard. Oh of. yeah, oh, I am in, intim, intimately intimately familiar with that program. Yeah, yeah. The people who make it, <laughs> the people who make Selector, would probably tell you that. It's as flexible as you need it to be, but I remember being uh, thwarted by it many times, and I could definitely see why you want to write your own software, because uh, it's, it's it's pretty much designed for commercial radio. Yeah, uh, and you know I could do what I uh, what I do using a program like that. It would take a much much longer amount of time uh, than uh, than it than it does using the tools that I've built. I think it's great that you've actually written the stuff yourself. Have you, have you considered like making it available, or is it just the sort of tinkering sort of software? That... Well, it's it's always been a very radio paradise specific uh, kind of uh, kind of situation. I'm in the middle right now of a major rebuild of our whole back end infrastructure, and it's oriented towards making it making it into something that would be uh, would be usable by other programmers. But then you would have to provide tech support. Uh, Oh no no no! I would um, what I would do is I would license the software to someone who wanted to uh, who wanted right. to run that business. Yeah. I do not want to run that business. No, uh, no, no. I'm I'm eyeing uh, the idea of retirement. Actually, Rebecca and I are are starting to look at, uh, at what our options are for uh, for for that in the in in the coming years. So you're going to set up like five or ten years of programming and prep it so you can just push a button and let it go on I could do that yeah technically you could yeah it might take you a while it would take it would take you know 3 or 4 years to do yep <laughs> uh, so that's another thing that people really appreciate re appreciate about radio paradise we design the station so that you can listen to it uh, during your entire work day every day and very rarely hear even one or two songs more than once during the uh, during the course of a week. Um, you know, once in a blue moon, you'll hear something two or maybe even three times, especially if it's something brand new. But um, but in most cases, you probably won't hear anything more than once during the course of a whole week. My wife and I will often hear music elsewhere and exclaim, hey, that's a Radio Paradise song, because <laughs> it'll be something that you play with some regularity, and it's the only place that we ever hear it, like uh, Fiona Apple or Supergrass or uh, the Dandy Warhols. But there's no overload of music of, or of a certain kind of music. I mean, they may be Radio Paradise songs, but it's not because they're overplayed. They're distinctive. Yeah, so much of radio is programmed towards people who are, uh, who are listening for... Uh, short periods of time and then switching away to something else uh, that is flitting between a bunch of different uh, different channels or people that are uh, that just have something on as strictly background music and they're not really even paying attention to what's uh, to what's on there and if it's repeating the same you know 200 songs over and over again in a semi random manner who cares you know it's just music you know it's generic uh, and you know I know 
as a you know as a as a radio programmer that that's probably the relationship that somewhere around 70 or 80 percent of the people that listen to radio have with what they're listening to it's just kind of on it's filler yeah it's background it's they're driving in the car they want something to keep the silence at bay yeah yeah and you know and we're and we're oriented towards the relatively small sliver of people who are listening to radio who are looking for something more than that, who are looking for something that's more of a foreground listening experience. How do you plan your programming? Do you think in terms of blocks of an hour or two hours or four hours or eight hours, or are you just thinking of a constantly evolving stream of music that you can never step into the same stream twice? Well, it's a, it is a constantly evolving stream of music. And, um, uh, but as far as stepping into the same stream twice, you can do that because we do repeat blocks of programming. Uh, I cannot craft 24 hours of music to the standards that we have for, uh, for programming every day. Uh, that's just that's not ever going to happen. So what is it, a 12-hour cycle, an 8-hour cycle? Uh, it's actually, uh, it's actually a pro an approximately one-month cycle. You can think of Radio Paradise, as it stands right now, as basically a one-month-long playlist of, uh, of music that when it gets to the end of it, it's going to start over again. And then, uh, and then as it goes along each day, I single out some, uh, some blocks of time, uh, and they're usually the uh, blocks of peak listening or stuff that, I've, that I look over and scan through and go, eh, that could be better. I could improve that. And so I'll go through and either, you know, outright replace blocks of, of programming, add in a little more and go through and just kind of polish up the, the rest of it. So it's undergoing this constant evolution and polishing process. But then it comes back around and it's uh, it's it's a month and then it's offset in time also. You know, the when something comes back, you know, comes back around a month later, it's going to be at a at a much different time of day than it right. than it uh, than it ran, so uh, so actually for somebody that's listening, you know, for as much as twelve hours a day in a semi regular pattern, it's more like a two month cycle, and during the during the uh, during the time, in between when one block of programming runs and, and when it runs again, for the same listener, it's gone through two chances for me to have gotten in there and polished and tweaked and replaced and. Uh, and swap things out. And so it, it is a constantly evolving thing. Most people are not at all aware that there's a, uh, an underlying pattern like that to the, uh, to the radio station. The people that, that have noticed some stuff like that don't really care because it doesn't, it, doesn't make, it doesn't make the programming any less entertaining to know that someone was listening to this same thing a month ago in the middle, of, in the middle of the night, you know, so what? <laughs> so how many songs are in a month? I think it's somewhere around 15,000. But wow. No, actually uh, it's going to be a little uh, a little less than that. I that number is including some some other other elements. A dozen an hour, 300 a day, um maybe 10,000? Yeah. 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 That's a lot. It, it, it is. Without many repetitions. Uh no, most songs are are repeated about twice on the average. Some of them are, some of them uh I'd say maybe uh, about 30 or 40% of the total songs that we play are actually played only once during that, uh, during that cycle. And then uh, another 
thirty or forty percent are, uh, are are played twice, and then the uh, the others are played uh, three times, or uh, and in cases of some new stuff, a little more than that. Can we can we ask you about licensing now? Obviously, you can't just broadcast this stuff for free. You're paying for for the music that you play. Oh yes, we are. Uh, that's a uh, that's a very complex process too. For uh, listening in the U.S., we pay uh, we we pay royalties to four different agencies, and we give reports about what we've uh, about what we've played. Uh, how often we've played it, and on some of them we report to we report uh, our income, and we pay based on that. And some of them we report the uh, the number of uh, of of times people have heard a particular song. So if we play a song once during a month, and ten thousand people are listening to it at that time, then that counts as ten thousand plays for that song. Uh, so we we compile a, a report automatically. I'm guessing this is one of the reasons you wrote your own software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This uh, this very there, there are some there, there are tools out there for this too because this is something that any internet radio station has to do. Not over the air radio. Over the air radio doesn't have to pay this particular agency. Now in in broadcast radio, I remember we used to do BMI logging and we'd sit there and we'd write down yes. the composer of every song we played for a week and then they would extrapolate how much we owed. But yeah. do you pay the composers or do you pay some kind of performance? Is how does that work? Three of the agencies we pay to are representing songwriters, and that's ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. And so we uh, we pay them and that is uh, that's divided up, up among the uh, writers of the songs that we play. And then the other agency is called Sound Exchange, and they represent the uh, uh, performance copyright owners, uh, which is performers and record labels. And they uh, we pay uh, we pay royalties to them. Uh, that's the the bulk of the royalties that we pay actually go to Sound Exchange, and uh, we pay more to them than we much more to them than we pay to the other four combined. And that's the same with streaming as well. It's the performance royalties that are higher than the the songwriting royalties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you hear you hear songwriters complaining about that from uh, from yes. time to time. What what about foreign countries? Uh, that is that's on a very patchwork uh, hodgepodge. Um, sometimes we hear from them, sometimes we don't. Kind of basis. So we have a uh, an, a very fluid, ongoing relationship with a number of uh, of foreign performance rights agencies. And the thing is, is that uh, in any given foreign country, we don't have a, you know, really super substantial number of listeners. So it's, you know, we're dealing with with amounts of money owed that are that are small enough that in most cases, it's not worth their time to bother contacting us. One thing that's interesting is that here in Europe, I think, uh, I can't say that every country, but radio stations do pay to play songs. Broadcast radio. Yeah, they, they pay royalties to the performers and the copyright owners, the performers yeah. and labels. Uh, that is true everywhere in the world except for uh, except for China, North Korea, Iran, and the United States. Okay. So, illustrious company. <laughs> yes. Well, I have a friend who's a, a mystery writer, and he gets a fair amount of money from Scandinavian libraries because they pay royalties for each time they loan books. Oh, Wow. So, yeah, li licensing is complicated because on the one hand, it's the individual country 
um, where you are, but now with the internet, you're reaching out to so many other countries. I can't see this turning into a sort of a global copyright system because the rights collection agencies are country-based. So getting a U.S. ASCAP or whatever it is to agree with whoever's doing this in France, Germany, and Brazil wouldn't be very easy. Uh, oh, no, no, no. That could keep uh, that could keep a whole continent full of lawyers and, and politicians <laughs> busy. <laughs> there was a time when they made changes. It wasn't about 10 years ago where it, it looked like you might have to go dark because the, the, the rates had changed and, and you guys were, were looking like you were going to be uh, underwater after a little while. Uh, yeah. It was a, a very scary moment. The back in two thousand two was the, uh, and then there were a couple of recurrences after that. But uh, the first one was in two thousand two, and they, uh, we had been waiting for uh, you know since uh, nineteen ninety nine. Uh, we'd been waiting to hear exactly how much we were going to have to pay to the uh, agency representing performers and copyright owners, and. Um, we had all assumed that it was going to be in the form of a um, percentage of revenue royalty, which is how we paid the other uh, agents, the ASCAP and BMI and the people like that. And it was, you know, it was a burden, but it was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a doable amount of money. You know, and it, it amounted to a uh, some total less than 10 percent of our uh, of our total revenue. And so we were thinking, well, maybe that much again to the uh, to the performance copyright owners. But instead, they came out with a plan where they were going to charge us per listen to each individual song. And once we got our calculators out and realized how much we were going to pay, we realized that at the published rate, it was going to be many, many multiples of our income. In, in any given month, it was an absolutely unsustainable amount of money that we would have to uh, have to pay to these people. And so we started a phone call and letter writing campaign to Congress uh, to get them to step in and do something about this. And um, they actually did. We uh, we went to we went to Washington and traipsed around uh, around Capitol Hill and talked to uh, talked to co congressmen and uh, and uh, a lot of staffers and whatnot and we you know got got a bill passed that um, that it was a special dispensation for internet broadcasters under a certain income cap to uh, to pay based on a percentage of revenue rather than uh, than on the uh, on the per stream royalty and then that was renewed a couple of times. And then uh, that eventually lapsed uh, a couple of years ago. And there was another kind of scary moment when we had to transition from, the, uh, from, from paying SoundExchange a percentage of, uh, of revenue to paying them per stream. But the, uh, the rates had, uh, had gone down substantially from, uh, from where they once were. And, uh, and we did the, did the math again. And our income had, uh, had increased somewhat. And we did the math again and realized that uh, that if we increased our income by a you know an achievable amount, uh, that we would be able to we would be able to make this work. And so we went to our listeners and said, "Hey, we've you know we we suddenly are paying basically about three times as much to the uh, to uh, to that agency than we had been than we had been paying." Uh, you know, hey, this is uh, this is our situation. We're having to pay them three times as much. Um, 
you know, how much, how much do you value what we do here? Are you willing to, uh, you know, to up your support to, to help cover that? And they did. I think it's important to note that you, that's your, that's your income stream is donations from listeners. That's oh, yeah. it. 100%. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Uh, that, that is our, uh, that is our only source of income. And, uh, well, we're, we have, uh, Amazon affiliate, affiliate marketing relationship, which brings in a little dribble of money. But that's, you know, for, for the most part, it's, uh, it's the income from, uh, you know, voluntary support. Like NPR. When it comes right down to it, it is absolutely no different whatsoever than the way, uh, than the way public radio is run in the United States. But do you give away tote bags as well? <laughs> No tote bags and no obnoxious fundraising weeks either. So no, it's... we uh, we don't do the uh, we don't do the pledge drives. We don't do the guilt trips. We have found that if we just gently remind people uh, from time to time that we are listener supported and we really appreciate the uh, the support that we get, and then once a year or so, kind of spread out some uh, potential reasons why we might be uh, worthy of maybe a little more support than we're getting right now, or or to actually what we're do what we do. Uh, once a year is to reach out to people that have, you know, joined us over the past year or have been uh, been listening and found themselves listening more and have, you know, in their minds made the transition between uh, between somebody who's, oh, that's, I'm just going to listen for now into somebody that, oh, yeah, I think I'll send them a little something. So, you know, we, we send out a, a uh, an email once a year to uh, to kind of nudge some of those people into becoming supporters. And it works. You know, we we're we're getting a, you know we're getting enough money in to, to cover the cover the royalties and uh, pay all our expenses and that's our only goal. So we'll certainly have a link to your website in the show notes. People can listen to Radio Paradise from the web. You also have iPhone and Android apps where they can listen in a flax stream. And if anyone wants to listen in iTunes, you can find Radio Paradise in the internet radio section in the eclectic genre. Yes. Bill, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. Now we will present our next tracks. These are albums that we've been listening to or plan on listening to a little bit more. Kirk, what have you got? This week, I've remembered an album by Harold Budd that I haven't listened to in a couple of years. It's called Avalon Sutra. It's a two-disc album, and the second disc is called As Long As I Can Hold My Breath by Night in parentheses. The first disc is 14 tracks, and the second disc is a single track, which is a remix of the 14th track, which is As Long As I Can Hold My Breath. This is remixed by someone named Akira Rabelais. This is a very, very interesting sort of Eno-esque track. If you're familiar with Brian Eno's album-length generative music tracks, you'll notice a lot of similarity, but this is much more structured. And, and what's interesting is that it's got this sort of these strings kind of ebbing and flowing like waves coming into a beach and going out again, but at the rhythm of human breath. It's, it's quite interesting the way this piece works. It's an hour and nine minutes. It's just the kind of thing to put on when you want to chill out and really enjoy this kind of long-form ambient music. So it's Harold Budd, Avalon Sutra, As Long As I Can Hold My Breath. Doug, what's on your playlist this week? This week, a new release caught my eye. It's rather different from Kirk's pick. It is called Juliana Hatfield Sings Olivia Newton-John. Now, I'm not a big Olivia Newton-John fan at all. I know four or five of her songs because I used to play them on the radio. Uh, I know Juliana Hatfield a little bit better. I've been listening to her since the 90s. Uh, we used to play songs of hers, and I, every so often she'll release an album that I think is interesting and worth listening to. And she apparently is a big Olivia Newton-John fan. She does 14 Olivia Newton-John covers 
Some of them are done um, fairly straightforwardly, and some of them add a little bit of the the Juliana Hatfield touch. And for example, of course, she has to do physical, probably one of the most popular songs by Olivia Newton-John. And in case you don't know, it's essentially a song about a person telling their partner that she wants to have sex right now. Um, but it's couched in this coy and uh, ambiguous uh, lyric, and the video also made it somewhat ambiguous because it all takes place in a in a in a gym in an exercise environment, which was a burgeoning craze when the song came out. Juliana Hatfield takes physical and takes some of the coyness out and adds a little danger and desperation. There's a great driving rhythm all through the song, which is makes it a little bit heavier than the original version, and you really get the sense that. Um, Juliana Hatfield is going to explode if you do not accede to her wanting to get physical and animal. Now, some of these songs are done with a little more uh, pop sincerity, and they're done a little more straightforwardly, but I'm really looking forward to see if there's any more of that 90s angst sort of girl power uh, factor in any of these other songs. It'll be interesting to listen to. Juliana Hatfield sings Olivia Newton-John is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.